0: Why renter's insurance? Because pipes. State Farm renter's insurance covers stuff landlords don't, like furniture that gets drenched by a broken pipe. Find an agent or get a quote at statefarm.com. Real talk for a minute. How worn out is your favorite pair of jeans? I know it's hard to get rid of them when you found ones that are comfortable and they fit right. But it's time for a new favorite pair for your closet. So let me tell you about True Religion. True Religion. I logged on, and one of the things I loved the most was the variety of washes and the variety of styles. They carefully craft everything from design to wash all the way through. They have skinny, high-rise, bootcut, straight, and even retro-inspired wide leg. When I got my jeans, as soon as I felt the fabric, I knew they were going to be comfortable. True Religion uses a softer fabric that keeps its shape but it's not just the fabric that makes them comfortable. The precision fit is what makes them the most comfortable and flattering jeans on the market. The fit is their focus. And True Religion doesn't just have jeans, t-shirts, dresses, jackets. They even have shoes all on the website. So are you ready to get the perfect fitting, most comfortable, most flattering pair of jeans? Right now, True Religion is giving our listeners 20% off your entire purchase when you go to TrueReligion.com slash Insight. Enter my code Insight at checkout. So do what I did. Go to TrueReligion.com slash Insight. Enter code Insight at checkout for 20% off your entire order. Welcome to Insight. I'm Charlie, and Allie is not with me again today. She is having a little break, but she will be back with our next Thursday episode. But with me today is Corey Constable. Hi, Corey. Hey. I know you as the host of Omitted, but you are working on something new right now.
1: I am, yeah. I quit doing Omitted back in October, um, right now I'm working on a new project called Crime and Kapu, so I'm sort of making my way into your genre a bit.
0: When do you expect that to be up and running so we can all run out and subscribe?
1: <laughs> I don't have a set date yet. I've just sort of been chipping away at it as I can. You know, I didn't want to stress myself out too much by setting an exact day that I needed to you know, meet the deadline, but I'm getting there. It's coming along, so hopefully not too much longer.
0: Good, I'm looking forward to it. You're one of my favorite narrating voices in Aww, you're too in sweet. podcast world. So, I I might get a little fangirl, which is super embarrassing, but I've done it before when we've had guests. So, I'll <laughs> I'll apologize in advance when you start doing your parts of the script if I get a little weird. I apologize.
1: Hey, I've been fangirling ever since you asked me to do this. So, I guess that makes a sequel.
0: Today, we're actually discussing something because we both read the same book and it came up online. And I thought, oh, hey, let's have Corey on for this. We're going to talk about the Midwest axe murders. We talked a little bit about them when we did our Velisca episode, which was like our fourth episode. So it was a long time ago. And we mentioned some other axe murders just in passing that had happened. So what we're going to do is we're going to back that clock up, and we're going to talk about those ones we specifically brought up in the Veliska episode. The book is called The Man on the Train. I didn't use it too heavily as a source on this episode because it, it kind of does its own thing. We'll discuss the book at the end, but it gave me a jumping off point for this and an excuse to have Corey on the show, so I'm very excited about that. Before we get to the axe murders that we did discuss in that episode that led up to Veliska, these would have happened in 1911 and 1912, I want to discuss one from December of 1910, and it only missed the cutoff for inclusion in the 1911 murders by 21 days, so it's pretty close. But the real reason I want to talk about it is it happened close to where I live, Some reports say the farm was pretty much across the street from the target I shop at. That's That's how close. Right? Uh, (laughs) Oh, man. There's another source that puts it a little further northwest, but with the rest of the story, that actually doesn't really make sense. So it happened, for anyone who's familiar with Kansas City area, South Kansas City, 135th and state line on the Kansas side. The Bernhardt family owned an 80-acre farm in what is now Leewood, Kansas. At the time, as part of Oxford Township, living at the farm was Emmeline Bernhardt, a 75-year-old widow, and her 40-something-year-old unmarried son, George. In a sworn deposition, someone who knew the family for 20 years commented they were peculiar people. For one thing, they weren't terribly friendly, or trusting of their neighbors, which was unusual for the rural Midwest at the time. It's kind of unusual for the urban Midwest today. People around here, they're just nice people. It was normal for families who needed to hire help to ask around at the other local farms, see if anyone was available. The idea was that you'd rather give the teen son of your neighbor the job than just some random guy if you could. Even better, families would trade work rather than hire it out using kind of a labor bartering system. But the Bernhards never did this. They would travel 15 miles up into Kansas City to hire from an employment agency and reportedly discouraged their hired help from even talking to the neighbors. Another thing is there was a rumor that Emmeline distrusted banks and kept all of her money in their home This would later be disproven. She actually had a few thousand dollars in the bank, which was a significant amount of money.
1: That's pretty good for the time.
0: Absolutely. They also paid their farmhands poorly in spite of having all this money, and they expected a lot of work out of them. They weren't exactly favored by their neighbors or by the people who worked for them. They had a lot of turnover of labor. So we're already building up a list of suspects before we've even talked about the crime.
1: But the crime starts on December 10th, 1910, when the rural postman out in Oxford Township was doing his usual route. He noticed that the Bernhards hadn't gotten their mail for a few days. He made a comment about it to two men who were working nearby, and they decided to check on the family. They noticed two dogs tied up, and as they approached the house, they saw that both of the dogs looked exhausted, like they just hadn't been fed. So they could hear the horse in the barn, and when they broke the lock to get into it, the horse started pushing urgently against its gate. The horse's movements disturbed some hay that was lying on the ground in the barn, and it threw it in a bit of an odd way. It uncovered a bloody body. They assumed that the man was George Bernhardt, but they couldn't be entirely sure because of how badly beaten he was. They moved more hay and found a second body, pretty sure that it was Emmeline. They were, after all, the only two who lived at that farm. The men went to Martin City, Missouri, the nearest thing that could really be considered a city at the time, and they called the county sheriff. It took 45 minutes for the sheriff and the prosecutor and the coroner to make it to the farm. The sheriff realized the second body was not an elderly woman, but a teen boy. It was 17-year-old Thomas Morgan, a new hired hand at the farm. In moving more hay, they found a third body of another man. Papers found on the body led them to believe that it was a hired hand named Glenn Cotner, who was actually working off on another farm alive and well at the time. So I'm not sure what he was doing with those papers. That seems odd. But the third man was actually James Graves, a different hired hand who was originally from Oregon. A broken and bloody pickaxe was found at the scene, and it appears the murderer only stopped striking George Bernhardt's body because the axe broke. Also nearby was a button from a shirt, though none of the victims were missing any buttons from their clothes. A clock weight was found on the ground, and the significance of that item will become clear in a second. The pockets of all of the victims had been turned out, and when they searched the farmhouse, they realized that the house had also been ransacked. The family's strongbox that held all their documents and cash, though, was still there. In a second-floor closet of the farmhouse, they found Emmeline's body with another clock weight, covered in blood nearby. It appears that she was beaten with the clock weight while hiding in the closet.
0: In piecing together the timeline, the last time the Bernhards were seen was December 7th, and lights had been seen at the house that evening. So investigators believe they were likely killed after dark on December 7th or possibly in the early morning of December 8th. This was winter, so after dark really means anything after 5 p.m. Personally, I would lean towards December 7th because the dogs and the horse were put away and no one was killed in their beds. If it was the early morning of December 8th, I think they would have either still been asleep when attacked, like what we saw in Villisca, Or there would have been signs that morning chores had started. Robbery was initially presumed to be the motive, even though not much was taken. The rumor in town was that there was a well-to-do family and they kept all their money at the house. And, you know, that sounds exactly like the Clutter family murders that we covered several episodes back. Just because the murderer didn't take much, it, it didn't mean he didn't think there was a bigger score to be had. A witness reported seeing a wagon with three men arrive at the house on December 7th and then leave very quickly, and there was a scream possibly heard at some point in there too. But investigators didn't seem to put much stock in this accounting. There was a huge question of how one person could have overpowered all three of the men. It didn't seem feasible that he held a gun on them while also swinging a pickaxe. The answer may be in this idea that he didn't take them all on at once. So let's say one of the hired hands headed to the barn to, say, put the horse in the stall for the night. The murderer was already hiding in the barn, having been staking out the house. He killed the hired hand and hid him under some hay. The second hired hand came in, whether to do his own chores or to see what was taking the other guy so long, and he was attacked and hidden. Then George, either because he heard something odd or maybe he was also wondering what was taking everyone so long, he went to the barn and was attacked. George is put last in this scenario because he sustained by far the most injuries. The hired hands, it would turn out, were only hit once each. George was hit until the pickaxe broke. The man in the barn had to have known George was the last one coming, or else he wouldn't have known he had all the time for this. The man then found the clock weights and took one into the house with him. And Emmeline had to have known the man in the house was not George because she was killed in the closet. So, my guess, and what it seems like investigators were leaning towards, was that she was actually hiding in there from the intruder.
1: Yeah, that's the way I took it as well. It was 1910, and fingerprint analysis was being widely used in investigations. But at the time, fingerprint analysis of swirls and whorls wasn't the method primarily used. They used what was called the Bertillon method, which was less accurate as it was a system of measurements. On the outside of the closet were bloody fingerprints that were too large to be Emmelines, and they were believed to be those of the killer. Inside the closet, there was another bloody print that included four fingers and the thumb of a left hand, likely the killer as he was bracing himself against the wall for balance. They cut this section of the wall out and sent it to Kansas City for analysis. There were multiple arrests in the case as the investigation progressed. A neighbor named John Fiegel was the last one to see them alive, and he admitted that the last time he saw them was when they were having an argument. One of the hired hands had set traps on Fiegel's property and told Fiegel that George Bernhardt had said it was okay. Fiegel confronted George, who denied it, and then Emmeline called Fiegel a liar. Of course, he said he left the farm and everyone was still alive and he didn't return again. But he did add that he saw two hunters on the property after hearing someone yelling the night of the murder. This story very well could have been manufactured since... He was coming under suspicion. He was probably looking for anything to get himself out of it. He was arrested after police found what they believed to be bloody clothes stashed in the closet of his house. Fiegel claimed that the red on the clothes wasn't blood, but rather red barn paint. He was formally charged with the crimes on December 15th and exonerated on December 17th. While I couldn't find what made them release him, you have to wonder if they realized that the paint on his clothes was actually paint, that it wasn't blood, and I'm sure they did a fingerprint analysis as well. There were other arrests in this case, including two former hired hands, a drifter who seemed really interested in the murders, and a friend of the family that was in town the day before the murders but had a solid alibi after the last known sighting of the Bernhards. No one was ever convicted.
0: The murderer and the motive both remain a mystery. It's possible that this was like the Clutter Murders and it was a murder from an attempted robbery. It's also possible this was a targeted murder of the Bernhards and the hired hands were collateral damage. George and Emmeline received significantly worse beatings than the hired hands. They were not popular in the community or among the hired hands that they brought to the farm, and because of their low wages and treatment of the hired hands, like I said, there was a high turnover rate, so they were regularly bringing complete strangers to their farm and did not endear themselves to any of them. The suspect pool was large, and it consisted of people no one probably even knew the names of. It's possible it was just a thrill kill from a man traveling the railways killing families, and we're going to follow that theory through to our next axe murder. This occurred on September 17th, 1911 in Colorado Springs, Colorado. This was actually a double murder, but some consider it the first murder in the series of the Midwest axe murders that led up to Velisca other people include Martin City in this count. So some background information. In 1911, tuberculosis was a major health concern, and the Modern Woodmen of America, a large fraternal organization, had opened a sanatorium in Colorado Springs. It was conventional wisdom at the time that the mountain air, or perhaps the altitude, was good for recovering from tuberculosis. Arthur Burnham had moved to Colorado Springs in 1895, already sick with TB. His health improved, and in 1904, he married May Alice Hill. Unfortunately, his TB got worse after several years, and he moved to the modern Woodman Sanatorium in 1910. He lived there full-time, coming home just once a week to visit. Arthur and May had two children, A girl named Nellie and a boy named John. Nellie's name is frequently reported as Alice, but I'm not sure where that
1: came from. Initially, the family lived with a woman named Anna in her boarding house, but they were able to find a small, affordable rental house in the same neighborhood. And by small, we mean it pretty much had two rooms and a porch. The back room was the kitchen, dining space, and spare bedroom, and the front room was a sitting room that doubled as the main bedroom. So that's pretty cramped. After Arthur moved to the sanatorium full-time, the spare kitchen bedroom was used when Anna had too many boarders at her house and had to send one over to May's house. Being that Arthur was in the sanatorium and only able to work there, and May had small children, she was happy for the small income having a boarder in the house every so often could provide. While at the sanatorium, Arthur met another man who had moved to Colorado Springs for the same reason, and his name was Henry Wayne. Henry lived at the sanatorium for nearly a year before he was well enough to leave, and Arthur told him about the neighborhood with affordable rental houses. Henry sent for his wife and two-year-old daughter from Indiana, and Henry and his wife Blanche and two-year-old Lula May moved into a house practically across the street from the Burnhams, with a similar layout. It also had the dual-purpose front room and back kitchen room. In addition to the occasional border, May also took in sewing for extra income, as did her sister. On Sunday, September 11, 1911, her sister Nettie was visiting, and both were complaining that they had a lot of sewing to catch up on. They decided to get together again to do their work and chat. Nettie had plans on Monday and Tuesday, so they agreed on Wednesday. Nettie left around 9 p.m. On Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday mornings, the grocer's boy stopped by to collect the grocery bill, but he didn't get an answer. The first morning, he assumed that they were still sleeping, so he stuck the bill to the door. When he returned on Tuesday and Wednesday and the bill was still there, he assumed that the family was out of town. So as planned, Nettie arrived on Wednesday around 2 in the afternoon. May didn't answer the door and Nettie noticed the bill for the grocer stuck on it. She headed over to Anna, the neighbor with the boarding house, assuming May had gone over there. But she wasn't there and Anna hadn't seen May for several days. Nettie called the sanatorium and got Arthur on the phone. He hadn't been home to visit since his daily visit the previous week.
0: Nettie and Anna... Anna, having a spare key to the Burnham home, went back to the house and let themselves in. It said that the key jammed or the door was somewhat blocked, but they were able to get through the kitchen door. They were immediately overcome with a horrible smell and almost left right there. Nettie noticed that the kitchen looked exactly as it had when she had left on Sunday night with the dishes from dinner still on the table. The door between the kitchen and the front room was half open, so they went through the kitchen and they looked in. It was pretty dark with all the blinds drawn, but they got enough light to see blood on the walls and what looked like a child's body across the bottom of the bed. They immediately left and called for help from the phone at the grocery store across the street. Word spread quickly about what happened, and the neighbors were all out in their yards and along the street watching. Authorities arrived, and someone commented that they hadn't seen the Wayne family out in a few days either. They had only lived in the house for a few weeks at the time, so they didn't have a lot of connections. But with every other neighbor outside, the stillness of the Wayne house was noticeable and alarming. Police went to the house and broke in the front door when they didn't get an answer immediately when knocking. They entered the front room, which the family used as their bedroom, and they found Henry, Blanche, and Lula Mae all in bed together, dead from head trauma. It was reported that Henry and Blanche were nearly nude, but it's unclear what this means, it may have been warm in their bedroom, so they could have been sleeping in less than full length nightshirts. So now we have investigators at two crime scenes. It's pretty clear that it's the same perpetrator. No one had seen the Wayne since that Sunday either. And the odds that there were two axe murders hitting two families on the same night that's ridiculous.
1: Yeah, that seems a little too far fetched.
0: We have to pause here real quick for a word from our sponsor. When we get back, we will talk about the crime scenes, the suspects, and three more axe murders. Blue Apron is the leading meal kit delivery service in the U.S., and I know why. I love the convenience. I can get on the website, very quickly pick my meal. There's flexibility, too. It's 12 recipes each week, and you can pick two, three, or four recipes I pick what fits my schedule. These meals can be cooked in under 45 minutes. All the ingredients are pre-proportioned, so I'm not having to go figure out how many carrots I need. They send me how many carrots I need. One of the things I really like is these really high-quality meals are designed by a team of professional chefs, and so they're putting a lot of care into creating these recipes, so they're accessible to everyone from beginning home chefs to experienced ones. What I love is that the recipe cards are so easy to follow that I can get my kids in there and we can do it together. The quick bucatini with broccoli and pecorino cheese and the Italian-style shrimp and sweet peppers, those are meals that are definitely going to be making it to my table. Blue Apron is treating Insight listeners to $30 off your first order if you visit blueapron.com slash site. So check out this week's menu and get your $30 off at blueapron.com slash site. Blue Apron, a better way to cook.
1: Taking the Burnham scene first, no murder weapon was found at the scene. John and May were found in bed in positions indicating that they were asleep when they were attacked, and the murderer covered them entirely. Little Alice was found nearer the bottom of the bed across her mother's legs. While it's possible she was moved, it's believed she had actually woken during the attack and tried to get away. This is also something that we saw at Villisca, you might remember. Most of the victims slept through the attack, but one appeared to have been awake. It's not entirely clear if Alice was covered because the accounts are vague, but I got the impression that she was and that Anna and Nettie saw what was her shape under the covers near the bottom of the bed. The window screen in the kitchen had been cut reportedly from the outside, and it appears that this was the way that the intruder entered the house. The house was left locked up, but no keys were missing, so it seems likely that he left this way as well. He had knocked over a bottle of black ink or possibly black shoe polish that was on the windowsill. A wash bowl of bloody water was found with two black fingerprints. It seems he tried to clean the black and the blood off of his hands. You may remember from the Velisca episode that a bowl of bloody water was found there as well. And we'll see this again. It's not going to be the last time. The absolute violence of the crime would have left the murderer covered in blood, so this ritual of bothering to wash in a washbowl at the scene is interesting. His hands and his face might have been clean leaving the house, but he would have been covered in blood otherwise. If someone ran into him as he made his getaway, they would have been alarmed by... You know, all the blood in his hair and on his clothes. He would have had to later clean completely and change his clothing, which means he would have likely had clothes stashed away, not too far away from wherever he was committing his crimes. But interestingly, his discarded bloody clothes were never found near the scene, so he must have taken these with him.
0: There is some debate as to if this hand washing was to clean himself so he wouldn't be seen covered in blood or if possibly there was more of a ritual to this, uh, a post-murder ritual of his. At this particular scene, there were two things that made investigators believe that the murderer attempted to set the house on fire. First, the bottom of a curtain was singed. This would later be attributed to the crime scene cameraman using too much flash powder. Back in the day, photography had to be done by natural light or artificial flash made by lighting a mixture of magnesium powder and potassium chlorate on fire for a quick burst of light. It's essentially a small explosion. The flash would be produced in a trough that was held up, but if any of the powder tipped onto the floor or onto fabric, it could start a fire. But the second sign of possible fire can't be dismissed so quickly. Near this singed curtain was a crumpled bit of Sunday's newspaper that was partially burned. It possibly could have been from the flash powder, but why was the paper on the floor? There was no reason for this crumpled paper to be in that spot on the floor. The fire attempt, if it did happen, seems secondary in hindsight anyway, and more of a distraction as we're discussing these cases. The entry to the Wayne home seemed to be from the back door. The screen outer door had a cut in it where the murderer likely reached through to unlatch the hook that kept it closed. A twisted wire was found at the scene, and investigators believe it was used to pick the lock of the main door. But the doors were found locked when investigators arrived, so they believe he may have then left through a window. All three of the Waynes were found in bed, and it doesn't look like anyone had woken up or didn't wake up long enough to attempt to fight back. There are two reports about the murder weapon. Both accounts agree that Blanche Wayne had previously borrowed an axe from a neighbor to cut firewood. One account says the axe was then found, bloodstained at the back door. The other says that the neighbor actually went to the house to ask for the axe back, on Monday, but when no one answered the door, she tried the back door and saw her axe just leaning up against the house. So when she didn't get an answer, she decided to just go ahead and take her axe back. She noticed there was blood on it, but assumed the family had used it to slaughter chickens. And what a different world it was in 1911, even in a city, If my neighbor borrowed a tool from me today and it came back covered in blood, I would have called the police.
1: And, I mean, I have butchered chickens before. I I feel like the amount of blood that had to have been on that would have been more than you'd expect from chickens, right?
0: I have not butchered chickens, but I can't imagine that they produce more blood than three human bodies. Well, even more because the same weapon for both crime scenes. Yeah, that's
1: right. Huh.
0: So you would I would think it wouldn't just be the blade, but perhaps the handle as well. Hmm,
1: That seems odd. Either way, there was only one axe found at the crime scenes, and it was found at the Wayne's house. That would make me think that the Burnhams were killed first and the Wayne's second. But investigators believe the opposite. There was no sign of black ink or shoe polish at the Wayne's house and they felt that there would have been some transfer had the murderer gone from the Burnhams to the Waynes. Also, from what I can tell, there was no washbowl at the Waynes' house, meaning that he only washed after the Burnhams. It's believed he killed the Waynes, then the Burnhams, washed up, and then put the axe back where he found it on his way out of town, very likely by hopping on a train on the railroad that was very nearby in the neighborhood. One thing that was noted in the Velisca episode was the oil lamps being left on the ground with the chimneys removed. The chimney is that glass tube on the top that goes over the wick of the lamp. And it's believed that they were removed so the killer could bend the wick down before lighting it. So this would give him just a dim light to be able to see, but not bright enough to disturb the family. We don't know if that's the case here because it's not mentioned that the chimney was removed, except that it was said that they were taking fingerprints from the chimneys of two lamps. The only reason to handle the chimney part of the lamp is to put it on or remove it. So I think we can say it's possible that this is something the crime scenes might have had in common.
0: Arthur Burnham was the immediate suspect, and he was actually arrested. But... There was just no way he could have done it. The sanatorium was 12 miles away, and his roommate vouched for him all night. He wouldn't have had access to a vehicle, and he was so sick at this point that he had to be helped around the grounds when he went on walks. There is no way he could have been well enough to walk 12 miles there, break into two homes, kill six people with a full-sized axe, and then walk back. In fact, Arthur was so sick he died of tuberculosis less than six months after the murders. There were two witnesses to an odd man in the neighborhood on the night of September 11th and into the morning of September 12th. At midnight, a miner coming back from work saw a man with a mustache, a soft hat, and of medium build hanging around the neighborhood. No further description was reported, and this man wouldn't be questioned at the inquest, so we don't know any more than that description. At 2 a.m., the milkman saw a man leaving the neighborhood on a bicycle. But the milkman, he too was not called at the inquest, so again, we don't know any more than that. Aside from rumors of possible love triangles, angry exes nothing more came from the investigation, and the investigation didn't even last long. It wasn't uncommon in those days for police departments to farm this type of work out to private detectives, and the famed Pinkerton agency got involved for a short time, but even they didn't seem to come up with much beyond attempting to match some fingerprints. It's also unclear which family was the target. If this was someone known to the families, it's possible he broke into the wrong house initially, but if this was the train-riding serial killer, is it possible that something happened at the first scene that didn't fit what he wanted, what he was after? The only real difference between the families was that there was not a father at the Burnham home. But that would mean that he killed the Burnhams first and was dissatisfied, not that he killed the Waynes first, as investigators have been led to believe. This is just one of those mysteries within the mystery that we'll never really
1: know. It was less than two weeks later when the next murder would occur, and this time it would be in Monmouth, Illinois. There isn't a lot of information on the investigation into this one. The victims were William and Charity Dawson and their nearly 13-year-old daughter, Georgia. They lived in a poor section of town, one of the only white families in their neighborhood. William and Charity had 11 children in total, but by 1911, four of them had died, four of them moved out, and only three daughters lived at home. William moved the family to Monmouth about eight years prior to start fresh after he was released from prison for serving time for theft. Their house was small, but not quite as small as the one in Colorado Springs that we were talking about. This one had five rooms, so the parents had a bedroom apart from the girls. William worked as a custodian for a local church. When the pastor arrived in the morning on Sunday, October 1st, the church was still locked. This was surprising because one of William's jobs was to get the church opened and ready for morning services. By the time services started at 11, he still hadn't shown. A call was placed to the house to check on him, but there was no answer, so two congregants went to the house to see what was going on. The front door of the house was locked, and no one answered, so they went to the back door, and they were able to enter the unlocked back door. They found Georgia dead in her bedroom, and William and Charity were dead in theirs. Scent tracking dogs took investigators to a local lake, but nothing was found there. An axe was found in plain sight, and it had blood on it, but it also had chicken feathers on it. A further search of the property found a length of metal pipe with blood and hair on it, and it was determined that this was likely the murder weapon. If this is the same axe man who is making his way across the Midwest, which many people believe it is, it's odd that he passed up his favorite weapon of an axe and instead used a pipe.
0: One very notable piece of evidence was a small flashlight found in the yard. There are multiple reports of the wording on this flashlight. All reports indicate it said Colorado Springs, but it may have also had the word lovely or lovey or loving on it and possibly the date September 4th. It may have only said Colorado Springs. Any combination of these things could have been on it, with Colorado Springs being the only constant across all reports. The flashlight wasn't found until months after the crime, so it could be unrelated, either dropped by someone else accidentally or put there as some type of prank or hoax. But if it is something, the Colorado Springs is of obvious importance, since it would be a link between the crimes in Colorado and the ones in Illinois. The word lovey would be of importance if you believe the state's theory that a man named Lovey Mitchell and two accomplices committed the murder as revenge against William for some perceived slight. The charges against Mitchell and the other man were dropped due to insufficient evidence, but the third man John Knight was convicted in 1915 and sentenced to 19 years. For those who believe in one killer for all these crimes, Knight was wrongfully convicted. And honestly, even if you don't think this was part of that, if you look into this a little bit, Knight was likely wrongfully convicted. As a white family living in a predominantly black neighborhood, there were a lot of racial overtones and undertones and every tones in this case, and it's possible that these men were just railroaded. Moving on to the next murder, we are back in Kansas this time. Ellsworth, Kansas is pretty much smack in the middle of the state. In October of 1911, it had about 2,500 residents. I'm going to say probably today, it probably doesn't have that many more than that. On Sunday, October fifteenth, 1911, the Showman family was visiting a laborer named Lori Snook. They left for home around 9 p.m. The family consisted of William and Pauline Showman in their early to mid-30s and their three children, Lester, Fern, and Fenton, all were reported to be under the age of five. At some point that night, either a marshal or a sheriff, it's been reported both ways, heard noises at his back door. His family was asleep, but he was still awake and he was reading. He thought it was possibly an animal scratching, but whatever it was, it stopped when he went to the back room with his lantern. The next day, he found the screen removed from his back door, and he assumed someone had tried to break into his home.
1: On Monday, October 16th, the showman's friend, Lori Snook, went by the house in the morning but received no answer. Throughout the day, the showman's dog would show up in her yard and she'd chase him off. She tried to call them and still she got no answer. That evening, around 6 p.m., she went back over to the house and when no one answered again, she opened the door. She entered the home and in one newspaper accounting... It makes the point that the door was locked when she went in. This house was set up similar to the other two-room houses we talked about. There was a kitchen in the back, and the front room doubled as a bedroom and a sitting room. When Lori walked into this front room, she saw that the family had been killed. William and Pauline and the youngest in bed, and the other two kids were in another bed. And oddly, the dog was inside the house. This doesn't really make sense if the dog was roaming the neighborhood and then was found in a locked house later on. It said in an article from 1911 that authorities believe the killer came back and let the dog back in the house, but this doesn't really make a whole lot of sense. In broad daylight, why would he take the risk of being seen? My guess is that there must have been some other way in and out of the house for this dog. Possibly it's the way that the killer entered and left, and the dog just also used it. Or it's possible that this was just misreported. Investigators would come to believe that William was killed in his sleep, but that Pauline and the children woke up during the attack. William was covered, but Pauline's body was posed in a sexually suggestive manner. Either in the kitchen or outside the back door, there was a bucket of bloody water and the killer likely used it to clean himself up, like he did in the other cases that we've talked about. The oil lamp that usually hung in the doorway between the front and back rooms was on the floor near the bed, and once again, the chimney had been removed.
0: The telephone in the home was covered with a dress. It has been said it was covered to muffle any ringing that might wake the family up before the murderer finished his task, but who would have been calling them at midnight or later? Just like with Veliska and the mirrors being covered, we don't really know why this was being done. Investigators brought in bloodhounds who tracked the scent from the house to the railroad crossing. These murders happened at the same time people were starting to connect things and thinking that these axe murders were connected. So the murders made it into papers, across the country. The axe was found at the house, and it had been taken from a neighbor's yard. Two fingerprints were taken, one from the axe and one from the doorknob. There were two suspects immediately, a man named John Smith and an ex-relation of the family named Charles Marziak. At first, authorities thought they might be the same man, A local hotel reported a man had checked in under the name John Smith and stayed there just a few hours, and he left behind a bloody shirt. A coroner's inquest determined that this John Smith was likely responsible for the crimes, and authorities sought to arrest him, assuming they were really looking for Charles Marziak. But it turned out that this man actually was named John Smith more like John Smitherman or Smitherton, and he would often just shorten it to Smith. They tracked him down largely because he told people in conversation why he was in town and where he was going next. He actually thought he had been picked up for stealing clothes because when he arrived in Ellsworth, he found a bundle of clothes near the train tracks and he took them back to the hotel with him. When he had a bloody nose later that night, he grabbed a shirt from the bundle to clean up. You have to almost wonder, was he picking up the killer's clean getaway clothes? John Smith's thumbprint was compared to the measurements of the prints left at the crime. They didn't match, so he was released.
1: But that still left Charles Marziak. He had been married to Pauline Shulman's sister, but they had divorced. Charles was convicted of stealing wheat, and his ex-wife married the man he stole the wheat from after they divorced, so there were some rumors of an existing love triangle. I'm sure that had to be a pretty salacious development for Ellsworth at that time. The motive for Charles having killed the family was that he was getting back at his ex-wife and her family since Pauline had testified against him in that theft trial. He had issued threats against everyone involved numerous times. The sheriff or marshal who had his screen cut out that night, he was actually the arresting officer in the wheat theft case. The two houses that were targeted that night were connected to the series of events leading to Charles going to prison. Two weeks after the murders, a cigar cutter that didn't belong to the showmans was found at the house. It was identified as belonging to Charles. Charles was nowhere to be found when the authorities went to question him. He didn't live in the state any longer, and he wasn't in his home state of Colorado. He was eventually found in British Columbia in April, six months after the murder. He was arrested and sent back to Ellsworth for trial, and he had to be kept under guard because there was fear that he might be lynched. The case never went to a jury, though. A hearing was held in June of 1912 where there was evidence heard before a judge, and Charles represented himself. A witness named John Herink was called to testify, and he saw Charles on the street at 4 a.m. on the morning of the murders. The witness, however, didn't speak English very well. There was a relatively large Czech population in the area. Charles Marziak and Pauline Schulman were among them, both having been born to Czech immigrants, who were referred to at the time as Bohemians. John Herring was so hard to understand that the judge reportedly had to silence the rest of the courtroom in order to follow what he was saying.
0: The only other witness directly against Charles was his ex-wife's new husband, who identified the cigar cutter as belonging to Charles and testified that Charles had threatened the showmans. On the other side of things, it came out that William Showman never turned his back on Charles, both writing and visiting him when he was imprisoned for that theft. Charles took the stand and provided an alibi that prosecutors could not get him to veer from. He was in Colorado at the time of the murders. On June 17, 1912, the judge dismissed the charges. The judge essentially threw out the evidence of the cigar cutter from consideration because it wasn't found for two weeks. The crime scene was of a very small two-room house. It's hard to imagine it was overlooked for two weeks, and the general feeling among authorities was that it was planted after the fact. From the start, Pauline's sister believed her ex-husband was responsible. She had taken measures to protect herself, assuming that she was next, possibly in a well-meaning attempt to help the case along, she and her new husband, they may have left a clue pointing to Charles at the scene. As for the witness who saw Charles, the judge discounted this as well. He hadn't come forward for months after the crime, and he was saying it was 4 a.m., and this was an area without any streetlights. Identifying a man under those conditions would be difficult. Without the evidence that Charles was at the scene or even in town, there wasn't enough evidence to proceed to trial. Charles was released and sent back to Colorado, but many believed he was guilty and had gotten away with it. It was believed strongly enough that it doesn't appear the case was pursued much after his not guilty verdict. And we are now to our last case. This occurred just three days before Veliska in Paola, Kansas.
1: This story is a little like the last one in that there was a murder and a failed break-in. On the morning of June 6, 1912, Rollin Hudson hadn't shown for work. Three neighbors, all women, had noticed that there wasn't any activity at the house all day. Neither Rollin nor his wife Anna were seen out in the yard. The curtains were still closed from the night before, and there had been a break-in at another house the night before, which we'll discuss in a minute. The women went into the Hudson home to check on the couple. It was a rented five-room house that was furnished sparsely with second-hand furniture, according to reporting at the time, making the point that the couple didn't have anything worth stealing. The front room seemed undisturbed, but when they went into the room right behind the front room, they saw what looked like two bodies lying completely still under a sheet. A deputy marshal had been coming by in his buggy, and they stopped him to tell him what they saw. He went into the house and found Rollin and Anna Hudson dead in their bed. Nothing was taken ruling out a robbery, and a lamp was found with, you guessed it, the chimney removed. No axe was found nearby, but it was ruled based on the evidence that a pickaxe was likely the murder weapon. In this case, it looked like they'd been attacked with the covers over them, which prevented a lot of the blood splatter. Newspaper reports at the time mentioned that it was believed that they were chloroformed before they'd been attacked. This bit about chloroform may have come from the reports of families who had the break-in that I mentioned, though. The family, known as the Longmire's, lived just doors away from the Hudsons. Around midnight, the mother was woken to the sound of breaking glass. It would turn out to be the chimney from a lamp. She got up only to see a man running out of the kitchen. Her daughter, who was only eight years old at the time, had also woken to see the man. He had entered the house by removing a window screen, and he had left behind a woman's dressing gown. The break-in was reported to authorities in the morning, and Mrs. Longmire was convinced that she and her family had actually been chloroformed because they were all so groggy when they woke up. And Mr. Longmire didn't even wake up during all the commotion. He stayed asleep through the breaking glass and the man running from the home.
0: If chloroform was used to subdue the victims before the attack, that may have been because of what happened in Ellsworth, where the mother and two children woke up. If attacking people in their sleep is what he was after, chloroform would have kept them asleep. Chloroform was frequently used as an anesthetic at the time, though. It's completely unclear to me how readily available it would have been to a transient man riding the rails. It was determined or possibly assumed that the dressing gown at the Longmire home was Anna Hudson's. So we have what possibly could have been a double event again where two families were murdered on the same night. In this case, the thing the families had that was dissimilar was children. Anna and Rollin had none, and the axe murderer, working on the assumption again that this is the same person, always attacked families with children. That might be why the attack on one home wasn't enough for him this time. But initially, the police looked into a man who was asking around town as to where the Hudson family lived on the 5th, and he was again seen leaving town on the train in the morning of the 6th before the bodies were discovered. And then at nine at night, the night of the murder, a neighbor had seen a man being let into the Hudson house by the couple, but they didn't see him leave. Uh, It's unlikely he was staring at the house all night, so it's quite possible he just didn't see him leave. This may have been, and probably was, the same man entering the house who had been asking around for their address, But it doesn't make sense for him to have been the murderer, though, because it's hard to imagine that he walked around town in full daylight, showing his face to everyone and asking directions to the murder home. I think this is just a terrible coincidence. That
1: would have to be a big one. (laughs) Yeah. There wasn't much into the investigation of this man in newspaper accounts, so either he was never identified or he was identified and quickly ruled out. A neighbor named George Coe told the newspaper that the Hudson marriage was strained and that Roland had confided in him that Anna had been unfaithful. So another theory emerged that this was a jealous man or possibly a jealous wife who took revenge. But like we said, it wasn't as though no one was suspecting a serial killer. Reports of this Midwest man made people wonder if this nameless, faceless railway rider had actually hit the town of Paola. If there was any doubt, it was likely cleared up a few days later when he struck in Villisca, Iowa, less than 200 miles away.
0: I recommend going back and listening to our Villisca episode if you're not familiar with the case. For more recent coverage, you can even check out Thinking Sideways episode, and you'll hear Allie and I. We got to do a part. They were very gracious to invite us to contribute to that episode. The one thing that stands out to me immediately, though, is this idea of chloroform being used. If you remember Velisca, one of the big question marks was that there were multiple people in that home murdered in their sleep. They stayed asleep even as other people in the same room or even the same bed were being attacked. Only one person appeared to have woken up at all. Is it possible that chloroform was used in Velisca somehow to keep everyone upstairs asleep? I don't know. It was one of the things in looking at these cases that really stood out to me because that has been a big question With Veliska, how did so many people sleep through everyone else being attacked?
1: That's always the one detail that has bothered me the most out of that.
0: Yeah, this chloroform thing kind of blew my mind. I, I mean, I don't know how feasible it is, but it's an answer to a question I've had for quite a long time.
1: It seems like something that he wouldn't carry around with him. I like. I feel like if you're just caught carrying around chloroform, like that would seem weird, unless you were like a doctor or something. But I don't. How else do you explain it?
0: <laughs> yeah, I, the chloroform doesn't fit in this idea of a transient railway rider, but it does fit in the everyone was asleep. So, so it it answers one question, but then it it raises another. Where did this guy get chloroform? How was he carrying around? How was he using it without knocking himself out? Because he would have had to have opened it in a room. I mean, he didn't individually cover people with a cloth. So, okay, so as I'm saying, it was a big moment. It gave me one answer. It also created a new one.
1: I think that's how a lot of the details from all of these cases have been, though, is that I can sort of piece it together, and then it just raises another question. It's so it's so hard. But the one killer theory for these murders, and even a lot of other murders that we didn't discuss today, is pretty popular, and it's been around for over a 100 years. None of the cases are identical, and many are missing a piece, but by and large, the main similarities between the cases are there was a lamp left on the floor with the chimney removed, the victims were whole families and never a single person living alone. These murders always happened in the middle of the night and often on the weekend, with Sunday being the usual day of the attacks. Bowls or buckets were used for the murderer to wash up. The bodies were covered with sheets, pieces of clothing, or in the case of the Bernhardts, with hay. Mirrors, a phone, or windows were covered. The weapon used was from the property or a nearby home and was usually left behind. And perhaps most notably in this theory is that there was a railroad track within walking distance of every single one of these murder sites.
0: Like I said in the beginning, what brought Corey and I together on this episode is that we both read a book that had been recently published called The Man from the Train, My friend actually bought it for me as a baby gift because she figured I'd need something to read during those early days of holding and feeding a new baby.
1: That's some cherry reading.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And what else would I read but um, a book about Midwest axe murders? (laughs) Bill James is a well-known baseball statistician, and he applied the same method that he uses in that to determine which of the axe murders were likely connected, which were probably not the work of the same person. And he gives a pretty big reveal of who he thinks the killer was. He names a name, and no, we're not going to say who. We're not going to spoil his ending. But I will say that we did not name him in our Veliska episode. It was not any of those suspects and it was no one we named today. The book has a casual tone to it. It's infinitely more interesting than any college stat book I have come across. So what did you think of the book, Corey?
1: I really, really liked it. Um, I read it back when we first talked about it, and then last week in preparation for this, I actually listened to the audiobook again, because it was one that I thought was good enough that I wouldn't hate to, you know, listen to it again. It, I mean, it's written in a scholarly way. There's plenty of research. He talks about a lot of evidence, um, a lot of analysis, but it was also super conversational. Um, he addresses the reader and sort of like teases them. And I enjoyed that. I don't know. I wasn't expecting it from a book about axe murders, I guess, but I really like that. So all around, I thought it was a really good book. Facts and figures at times were a little bit dry, but I would have to give it like a four and a half out of five stars.
0: Like you said, the facts and figures parts, they they were a little dry. My brain's not a fact and figure kind of person, but they were pretty quick. Uh, I didn't feel like they lingered too long, so my brain could get back to the easier parts for me to process, the more languagey parts of the book. But I think it's really interesting. One of our listeners is friends with his daughter, so she was kind of excited to hear that we're going to talk about it. It's one you have to sit down and read straight through, because sometimes he double backs on things, or like you said, he teases the reader a little, so there'll be like a really short thing, and it's like, we'll get to that later, which kind of made me laugh because I feel like Ali and I are constantly doing that in our episodes where and we don't mean to tease we're just trying to give context so we're like okay guys hold this thought and we'll get to it later I promise but it's all going to come together we just you know try to put those pinpoints so people remember things but it did make me laugh because I was like wow I, I think he and I have a similar <laughs> writing style well
1: I keep coming back to your episodes, so I think it works
0: <laughs> oh, good. That's, well, that's really good to hear. So thank you, Corey, for coming on and spending some time on a Friday night talking to me.
1: There is nowhere else I'd rather be on a Friday night, believe me.
0: <laughs> that, that's very nice of you to say.
1: <laughs> well, thank you for having me.
0: And when your new show comes out, definitely send us the promo so we can run it because I know our listeners are going to want to listen to it. I mean, obviously, they're true crime fans. But like I said, you're one of the greatest narrators in the pod world. So I think people are really going to like it.
1: You're going to make me cry. (laughs) (laughs) I will send that over to you, though. I really appreciate it. Thank you.